Hello eavesdroppers, it's Armist Inquisition time yet again on Sunday, the 25th of August, 2019. Uh, I'm Armish Phil, Armish Matt is in the house. Hello everyone. Armish Ben is here. Hi. And this week we're, we're joined in the studio with a very special guest, Peter Jones. Peter is an ergonomy researcher, author and founder of CORE, the Centre for Organomic Research and Education. Hello Peter. Hello everybody. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Good. Pleased to be here. Good. Good. We're pleased to have you. Thanks for doing this. Um, I thought we'd start off basically with a little short b background of you, your personal background and how you first got, well, how you, how you first came across ergonomy as a subject and how that all came to fruition. Well, it's an unlikely story and my background in a way is unlikely. Um, I've done a lot of scientific work recently in the last 10 years or so, but my background is quite the opposite got a degree in languages mm. and uh, almost by accident because that, that was the only thing I was any good at at school and I couldn't stand science at school <laughs> ironically even though I would have flat bursting with scientific equipment now. Um, I did a languages degree at London University many years ago and uh, started earning a very ordinary living teaching English to foreign students. Right. Um, and I came across Wilhelm Reich, who is the founder of Orgonomy, the man whose ideas and discoveries and uh, theories are the basis of Orgonomy. I came across him quite by accident in the way you do. I just met somebody who was very seriously into Reich, as people would have said in those days. And he kept badgering me to borrow a book from him that he wanted me to read. What, uh, what year was this, Peter? This would first... be in the early 1960s. Oh. A long time ago. I've been at it for 50-odd years now. And I was very resistant to this pressure, as I always am, you know. If someone comes along and suggests to me that they've got the answer to every problem of the universe, if, as long as I read such and such a book or do such and such a thing, I'm automatically on to push them back and say, hold on, you know, let's have a proper look at it. So I was very uh, resistant. Skeptical in, by nature. Exactly, yeah. And in the end, I said... Okay, give me the bloody thing, you know. If it'll shut you up for a few days, I'll read it, you know. And at the time, I'd started to get interested in psychology um, as an amateur, as it were, you know. Um, and I was reading around psychology, people who were big names in the day, and not getting very far, not finding it very interesting, and not finding any answers to the questions I was asking in my own head. Um, which were the fairly typical questions of a, a sort of frustrated, angry, 
adolescent boy who was lively and interested in things, but just felt that the version of life and the world that was being thrown at me by school teachers and my parents didn't quite click somehow. Um, and I wanted to find answers to my to these questions myself. And so I, I borrowed Rice, The Function of the Orgasm, as it was called, and it's still the only book by Rice in print in the UK. And it is his classic biography, the book for anyone to read at the beginning. Mm. And I started reading it full of scepticism, expecting it to be another boring psychology textbook. And uh, it wasn't at all, you know. It went straight to the point about all these things that I was interested in. In particular, why was everybody such a hypocrite? That was one of the things I'd noticed as a child, that people would preach one thing mm. and do another. Everybody I met, my parents, the vicar, the local <laughs> doctor, all my dad's business cronies, everybody, you know, preached one thing and did another thing. And that kept getting to me as a small child. Um, as I grew up, and I'd also become interested in politics. And, of course, people of my age, I was born just as the war was starting. Obviously, didn't wasn't aware of that. But it was still a huge thing hanging mm. there during the war and afterwards, you know, World War Two. What mm. had happened? What was it all about and why? And who was this big baddie Hitler, you know, and what had he mm. done and why was he so terrible? Something our generation cannot... Can't comprehend that, really, no, can you? No. no. I think of it, if you imagine a huge fire that leaves a great big black cloud of smoke yeah. in the sky, it was like that wherever you looked in sort of 1945, 1950 onwards. People still talked about the war. You met people who fought in the war. The war was the thing, you know, that everybody talked about. And then people, of course, started making films about it, the great... British myth, you know, the wonderful Brits mm. surviving the Blitz and D-Day and, and things like that. People of my age were just brought up on that, you know. Mm. You couldn't get away from it. And I think as a small child, probably war was one of the first words I'd have known <laughs> yeah. because it was in it almost every sentence that a grown-up uttered, you know. Yeah. Everything was before the war or was going to be after the war or when the war's over and you couldn't do this and you couldn't do that. Because there's a war on. Well, rationing went on for years after yeah. the war 1953. ended. 1953. Yeah. Absolutely. And that was very much part and parcel of the war. So that was part of the questions I was asking, you know, what had happened and why. And, um, of course, by the time I was a teenager, I was finding out about the war and the slaughter of the Jews and the, the fantastic numbers of people that were killed one way or another, although the actual war hardly ever touched me, you know, up in suburban northwest. Mm -hmm. There were no air bases nearby. I never saw soldiers firing guns in anger or anything like that. Were you, you, know. were you evacuated? No, no, because I was already, you know, living in fairly safe suburbia. Um, the nearest bomb that I ever heard about was about two miles away, mm. dropped on a church and knocked the steeple down. I think it was a pilot dumping his load before he scarped mm. from bombing Liverpool. He lived about 10 miles away from Liverpool. Right. Um, and Rice, of course, honed in on fascism and authoritarian, authoritarianism and 
the social currents that brought Hitler to power through popular support. Mm. Um, so he fed into that straight away. Um, and that's still a, a lasting interest of mine, why people buckle down to authoritarianism and even seek it still. You know, even nowadays mm. people are seeking authoritarian solutions yeah. to social and psychological and political problems. Um, it's really taken off again. Yeah. So Rice seems as relevant now as he ever was. As far as his psychoanalytical work, yes. writings go. Yes. Yeah. And after reading The Function, which detailed a story of his involvement in psychoanalysis and getting to know Sigmund Freud and studying with Freud and learning how to be a psychoanalyst, that's what that book's about. And the social background to Rice's first acquaintance with psychoanalysis and the lack of contact that Freud and his people seemed to make with the political issues of the day. Reich was very involved with politics and Freud and company seemed to just want to forget that. Yeah. Uh, and that was the cause of quite a big split between Freud and, and Reich. And the next book I read was an earlier one, but it was called The Mass Psychology of Fascism. And it was a psychoanalytic study of people's tendency, you know, to be attracted towards authoritarian solutions. And in particular, tub-thumping, exciting militant social solutions. And this is what Reich really honed in on. He compared what Hitler offered with the bands and the flags and the drum mm. beats and the ex excitement and fun and the sort of Hitler youth and yeah. the camps and everything. And he compared that to German trade unionists trying to lecture the workers on Marxist economics. <laughs> and who's going to win, you know? <laughs> Hitler won hands mm. down, of course. Yeah. Um, and that was an approach to politics that was totally new, um, homing in on the psychology of it, the excitement well, of it. Well, that's what I was going to say. It seems like it was completely different. That's maybe why it was so successful. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, well, Reich's the the mass psychology of fascism was um, why they didn't like it being published, essentially. Yes. Yeah. His that book would have got him had he stayed in Germany, it would have got him executed. Right. So he had to leave Germany. Was it in thirty yes. nine? Was it after no, he, the... he left before then? He oh, left right. in thirty three. Right. He started out in Vienna with Freud, mm. and in nineteen thirty he moved to Berlin. He was a citizen of the what had been the Austro-Hungarian Empire and so presumably was a citizen of the Austrian Republic. Um, he moved to Berlin in 1930, worked as a prominent and active psychoanalyst and also a political activist until 1933. And when Hitler came to power, he had to scarper in no uncertain manner, like lots of people. Yeah, um, Einstein was he one? 
Did he leave? I, Loads I of people. Lots of things. <coughs> was he not? That was maybe after the war. Maybe was he not um, uh, born into a Jewish family, but not but not raised as a Jew? Or exactly. Like that? He would have been counted as a Jew by mm. the Nazis. Mm-hmm. So that was another reason for executing him, and he would have been ex- executed a third time over because he'd been a communist. <laughs> yeah. Right. So he was. Um, he was really doomed if he stayed. <laughs> he went to Scandinavia and moved about between Denmark and Sweden and Norway and eventually, after a year on the sort of living out of a suitcase, as it were, he settled in Norway until 1939 and did some of his very important work there. That's where he discovered the orgone, the orgone energy, and he developed his psychoanalysis into his body-orientated therapy. He was the first therapist of any sort to start paying attention to how people breathed, digging into their muscles, pointing out to them how they stood, how their voices sounded, incorporating mm. bodily stance and position. and Posture. Uh, posture, exactly. Um, as opposed to just what people said. Right. And I, I think it's worth mentioning that he, <coughs> I think what fed him into this direction was his own body awareness of his interpretations bouncing off patients when he was doing talky psychoanalysis. Mm. And he would try to point out to people how they were escaping, trying to escape from facing up to unwelcome things. And they just you know, kept him at arm's length. And he, he experienced that as a body feeling. Mm. Um, I bring that up because... Rice psychology is still, by many people, neglected and ridiculed. But everyone knows that experience of talking to a brick wall. Yeah. People say it, don't they? Oh, don't talk to him, you know, you might as well talk to a brick wall. <laughs> and that's what Rice technically named a resistance, a character resistance, you know, a way of keeping the world at bay, keeping other people at bay, or keeping your own internal feelings at bay. Right, right. Um, and that's one of my little axes, which I grind a lot, is the this idea that although you can read Rice books and they're technical and maybe a bit difficult in places and you might need a dictionary to read them, in fact, most ordinary people know what he's talking about if you talk about it in terms of, in ordinary words. Because mm. it's everyone's lived experience. Exactly. And everybody knows what it's like to talk to someone who feels like a brick wall, don't mm-hmm. they? We all know it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did this? How did he sort of go from psychoanalysis into orgonomy then? He developed a particular school of psychoanalysis, which he called character analysis, which was still talky, talky therapy, interpreting what the patient said, the verbal material the patient presented. And he gradually focused more and more on how his patients behaved, not just what they said, but how they said it and how they sat and even how they remained silent. You see, in conventional psychoanalysis, if the patient remains totally silent and doesn't say a thing, you're lumbered. But with Reist's approach, the silence is eloquent as anything you might say. Mm -hmm. And he initially just started pointing out how people stood and sat and spoke. 
and more and more focused on how they behaved. And he eventually started actually touching them, digging into tense muscles, mobilising their breathing. Right. Uh, looking in their eyes and asking them to look in his eyes. Uh, he just invented a very clever way for mobilising people's eyes and um, discovered that eyes are one of the ways for controlling feelings. Um, and there's a wonderful part of one of his books called Character Analysis where he goes through the, what he calls the segments. It's called the segmental arrangement of the armouring, starting with the eyes, the mouth, the neck the chest, the diaphragm, the abdomen and the pelvis. And as you can imagine, again, you don't need to be a psychology graduate to twig on that certain feelings belong to certain parts of the body. Mm. That's why I, when I was reading about him, was I wanted to ask about armouring. Yes. And what that was, is that essentially how you hold yourself? Exactly. Yeah. So if you tense up and your shoulders... Go up right. like that, that would be an example, would it? Now, listeners can't see Phil here, but he's yeah. just, he's mimed beautifully. Someone very <laughs> tense with his shoulders up by his ears mm. and his, I bet if I poked your chest, your chest would all be rigid and hard. Mm. Yeah. And then if someone was sitting about relaxing in a pub and someone walks through the door <laughs> like that, you'll think, God, he's tense, isn't he? <laughs> you know, he's uptight, she's uptight. Everybody recognises that. Yeah. And Reich would have poked about in those muscles, tried to move the arms and the shoulders, keeping the patient breathing, reminding them to breathe, reminding them when they stop breathing, and slowly things would come to the surface. The situation that produced those tight, tense mm. shoulders that you're talking about, or dead eyes, or a rigid jaw you know a square yeah jaw that looks like a a hammer or an axe or something um and if once you start thinking in these terms you can think of someone who looks like that a friend you know a relative or a teacher or somebody you know you know that you have to interact with at work who who does that who looks like that whose voice sounds like that mm. it's quite accessible actually it's not high-flown. It's not um, academic or um, technical or intellectual. It seems Very like a like a, sorry like a, um, a collaboration between sort of uh, reading body language, um, and then to a lesser extent, sort of when he starts moving the muscles around, massage, physiotherapy, yes, yes. Um, yoga, the breathing, yoga, yeah. breathing exercises. Did, was he an early exponent of all these things? He Has was. Been a... He was the first psychotherapist of any sort to incorporate body attitudes and breathing and physicality into the therapy. Because they're all mainstream nowadays. Absolutely, and they are. all come from Reich. Right. And people don't know that. Mm -hmm. No, they don't. Oh. So the, the armouring, is that like pent-up energy then? Uh, yes. It's like a tension... So, like, someone who's hunching the shoulders up, that's what it seems like to me, like it's pent up or frustration or something like that. Is that's that what right. he's getting at? You've led beautifully to what I should have said next, Phil. <laughs> Thank you. <Okay. laughs> You've mentioned energy. Right. Again, 
that's an idea that is fairly accessible to most people. You know? mm-hmm. Oh, he's got lots of energy. She's not got much energy today. Where's your energy gone today, <laughs> Mary? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm depressed, you know, I've got this and that and the other going on. Pe- energy is an everyday concept to people. Um, you don't need to read a book to get a fingertip feeling for people and their energy. And what Reich discovered or what his patients told him was that if you started digging about in these tight muscles and keeping people breathing, they started reporting very powerful body sensations that they always described in terms of something flowing or moving or tingling. Right. Um, and it's quite easy to do a little demonstration, you know, it takes five or ten minutes with somebody who's not too armoured to help someone feel these sensations of something moving. And being right, he didn't just think, oh, right, something moving, yeah. He thought, he grabbed at it, what, what is it that's moving? Mm. He had this very strong feeling for energy and movement, I think because he was a very alive person himself. And he wondered whether these sensations of motion and expansion or when someone suddenly bunched up again, you know, tightened up again, the sensation of contraction and shrinking, he wondered whether that was a basic function of nature. Would you be able to see it going on inside tiny little animals? And he honed in on this idea of expansion and contraction, associating expansion with pleasure and contraction with anxiety, which again, I think, is a fairly simple idea that lots of people will pick up on straight away. You can relate that to your body language, certainly, can't you? Like tensing up, getting small when you're anxious. Absolutely. When you protect yourself and then feeling more relaxed. Especially if you've got children. Yeah, you know, you can tell straight away where a kid is at three or four, can't yeah, you? Yeah, you know. There's two phrases that that come to mind when when you tense and then you 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 have that sort of release. There's getting something off your chest. Yes. And yes. a weight off your shoulders. You know? Yes. You know, is that brilliant? Yes. Sort absolutely. Of yeah. Where we're going from? Because that's a, a definite feel. When well, you're it's a sensation, about that, isn't it? Yeah. It is definitely. Yeah. It's anxiety that brings a physical symptom. Yeah, mm-hmm. I used to, before I was self-employed, most of my Sundays were ruined because usually around Sunday lunchtime, I would start having this feeling in the pit of my stomach. When heartbeats on. About having to go. Well, it used to be Sunday evening, it would gradually got earlier in the day. Earlier. Yeah. And it's, it's a physical manifestation of a psychological issue, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, of course, the discovery, if you boil it down, is... The, the what you're talking about, the sensations and the contraction, mm-hmm. is part and parcel of what we in Western culture describe as going on in our head. And, and the, the end of Rice psychological discoveries, as it were, is that, for example, anxiety is not just something between your ears. It's a body process. Mm-hmm. And if you undo that process physically, the anxiety will fall away. This is fundamental, this, isn't it? The link between psychology and physiology. Absolutely. Because we live in a very mechanistic, reductionist society at the moment where it's all about breaking things down small and small and small. Yes. 
and having a, a link, um, you know, consciousness is just a byproduct of chemicals in the brain. It doesn't That's really right. exist. No, just, you get laughed. If you talk about um, this book that Matt lent me last week, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, he talks about souls in there. Mm. Now, a modern psychologist publishing that would probably get ridiculed, talking yeah. about a soul, a human soul, you know. Mm-hmm. But this is fundamental, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. The link between brain and body. And so is this where he developed his theory of orgone energy then? Yes, he he sensed, of course, the release of energy and the energy moving in the organism. And he this is where what actually led to his discovery of orgone. A Freudian would have just called it libido, you know. Ah, uh, yeah energy behind feelings um, and he took to examining amoeba <coughs> um, if you don't know what an amoeba is you know if you look at it down a microscope it's a blobby thing full of dots single-celled organism Sing- a protozone a single cell organism with no structure to speak of no skeleton um, and it can take any shape it wants um, it moves by putting a sort of bit of itself out, a pseudopodium it's called, and then the rest follows that bit and so on. And and it expands and it contracts. So he'd found, you know, the expansion and contraction at the lowest level mm. in wow. nature. Wow, right. That's quite the a amoeba. link, isn't it? And he took to examining amoeba and wondered where they came from. And the normal explanation for the origin of an origin of amoeba is that they come from spores attached to grass right, right. and rice didn't swallow that and he looked started to study grass down his microscope in water and he found that he could observe amoeba originating from the edge of grass underwater and i'd witnessed that process myself that's what started me on my road back to science. I um, read about the Bion experiments. I'll come to Bion's in a minute and sensed that they were probably right and I really wanted to have a go at repeating them and checking out Rice's findings. The Bion's are these highly mobile little dots that he observed forming on the surface of grass in water and breaking away into the water. Right. We call those bions. Spontan- be- spontaneously appearing. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is, apart from needing a fairly good microscope, that's quite easy to observe. It's not, right. not difficult experiments. I've done it more or less as a self-taught beginner. Mm. You know, somebody showed me it once. Um, and a couple of years later, after I'd finished my midwifery training, I had a salary and everything and enough money to buy a microscope. So I bought a microscope and in fear and trembling started these experiments, you know, and um, I found that I could confirm Rice's findings. Everything he wrote up in his books, there's one book by him called The Bion Experiments on the Origin of Life. And I did those experiments like a nervous beginner cook. 
You know, if you're learning to cook, you've got the recipe book in one yeah. hand mm -hmm. and you're looking anxiously at the oven or the pan or whatever you're cooking, cooking in. And that's how I did them. You know, I was scared that I'd wasted a fortune on a microscope and it was going to be a waste of money and it all wasn't going to work. But it did work, you know, it really worked with a vengeance. So is he saying these bions turn into amoeba? I'm a bit lost about where you the, get there's spores... That was a traditional explanation, wasn't it? That yes. the spores land on the grass, is it, and then yes. turn into amoeba? That's but the he, conventional explanation. But he um, witnessed them just appearing out of yes. thin air. You get separate bions. They look like a little dancing dot. They're very, very energised and spin round on themselves. Right. Um, and you get agglomerations, two, three, four, in the water on their own. But if you have a blade of grass, you'll find that you get a blob of them on the edge of the grass inside a membrane. And they're all busily roaring round, you know, mm. on top of each other, boiling away, very, very energetic. And if you watch for long enough, all of a sudden you'll see this membrane peel off and this organism waddle away into the surrounding water. And that's the amoeba. That's the amoeba, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And does that only happen with grass? No, it seems to happen with some things and not with others because Reich right. did a similar experiment with moss okay. and found that that also produced amoeba. Mm -hmm. He tried things like tulip stalks mm. and they didn't for some reason. Right. And I've tried various other things and some do and some don't. Mm -hmm. But you get the biomes, not necessarily the amoeba, but the biomes from almost anything if you let it soak in water and break down or if it's a mineral material, say like sand, soil, coal dust, charcoal, rocks of various sorts, if you just grind it up fine in a pestle or mortar until it's really fine dust and you add it to water even if you heat the, supposing it's a mineral material and you heat it to red heat mm -hmm. in a flame and you boil the water so everything's totally sterile, you still get these little dancing dots and you get, find them forming these agglomerations, little like worms in the water that bend and stretch. Right. This might be a stupid question, but it's not the water, is it? Something in the water? No. Rather because than the material. No. That just seems like the water was in, in every every example. Sort of thing. Oh, you've got to have water, yeah. You've got to have a fluid, yes. Some from the water. From yes. But um, I'm not quite sure what you mean from the water. Uh, so the the origin, I think what Phil's getting at is that are they the... Is the origin of the of what you see in the, the water? The bion, is it the, the water or the material? Grass. Because oh, using the bion, water. yeah, if you have water on its own, you won't oh, get right. anything. Okay, you right, you anything. have to put something. You in. only get the bions if you put something right. into the water. Right. Yeah. Now, um, the classical uh, practice of microscopy and microbiology yeah. uh, would say that you, what you're seeing potentially is, is organelles at a low resolution. So your your mitochondria. Your what are organelles? Yeah, yeah. So or the organelles are the the uh, structures within a cell. So, yes. Yes. So you get your cell, and then within the cell, there's your nucleus, your uh, mitochondria, mitochondria. Uh, yeah, endoplasmic reticulum, depending yeah. on what you're looking at, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
They're, um, they're not as structured as those. Well, nowhere near as structured. Th- this is what I'm saying. You're saying dancing dots. Um, the would that be to do with potentially the resolution of the microscope? And my next question would be: Has this been um, repeated using an electron microscope, which wasn't around at the time of these original? No, unfortunately, you can't do it with an electron microscope because that demands a paralyzing and killing of whatever you're looking yes, at. Fixing you see. And, yeah. Um, people always ask that question. As far as I know, so far, no one's devised a way of looking at them with electron microscopes. In the um, news this week, actually, this is this is topical. They, ha- they have developed a, a microscopic uh, practice uh, method yeah. that allows you to, to view live somatic cells, they're looking at, uh, live cells um, with the resolution of an electron microscope. Really? It's, it's very, very new. I, I, I read a short article on it earlier this week. Oh, well, I'll have to follow that up. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send you the lead. They're only yeah, a couple cause... of million pounds, probably, <laughs> for a prototype. The other thing, a microscope is relatively expensive, but it is within the pocket of an individual, <laughs> whereas, as you say, uh, an electron microscope probably does cost yeah, millions. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, massive as well. Um, where does the sterilisation process come in? Well, the standard, you asked me, what's the standard arguments against orgonomy? Yeah. And one of the standard arguments against rice bion claims is contamination, you know, that it's just germs in the water, you know, or germs on the material. Right. Um, or Brownian motion. Ah, Yes, Brownian motion. Which is where Brownian motion comes in. So if you've heated your ground minerals up to red-hot heat, that's several hundred degrees centigrade. Right. So as far as we know, there's no life forms that can survive such heat. For a prolonged period. So so you you have a spatula, uh, you get your scoop, a metal spatula, you get a scoop of whatever you're using, say sand, uh, and you put it in the flame and you hold it there for a couple of minutes and it starts to glow red all over. Um, if you had a proper lab, you'd be using a Bunsen burner, mm-hmm. you know, like you do at school. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't got a proper lab and I improvise with a little methylated spirits burner, but it still does the job. And the water, you, you can just boil. Um now, there's some argument that there's, correct, you know, it's true, that there are some organisms that will survive boiling. Well, um, you hear about these vents at the bottom of the yeah, sea, yes, don't you? Yeah. But so. to all intents and purposes, in an ordinary domestic environment, I don't think there's very much that's going to survive boiling. Mm. If you want, you can sterilise something to, say, 120 or 30 degrees centigrade, by autoclaving it, which is what they do in hospitals um, with surgical instruments. They boil them under pressure. And if you boil water under pressure, you get a much higher temperature, of you, higher than your 100 degrees Celsius, right. you know, about 120 or 30. And you can do that at home with a pressure cooker. You don't have to have all the fancy gear that a hospital has. Mm. So these, uh, Peter, these, these bions... Um, are obviously not susceptible to heat uh, in a normal sterilization, no. but must be chemically uh, sensitive. If the the fixatives, because there's no fixatives on the on these slides, is there? I just, just you, no, you, you both. no. 
So what using the fixative would that destroy the experiment? You wouldn't you wouldn't be able to put a chemical stain or and a fixative on your slide like in the same way you would prep for electron microscopy. I'm not sure if you some bion cultures last for a long time. Right. Um so it would be worth that's a good something worth doing that you know how long would they last if you put a fixative around the edge of your cover slip and they were completely sealed i don't know um some bion cultures some materials produced bions you know and then they just die away after quite a short time Mm. it's not the same you don't get the same result from every material all right so it's not Um, like a yeah hard and fast no um, and another thing which is very relevant to how valid the claims are is that you don't get bions growing in a very alkaline solution right. with a pH above about 12. Okay. Uh, a couple of German workers called Palm and Döring um, discovered that some years ago and they're no longer active in the field. Um, they've gone back to therapy but there is a paper written by them where they make this discovery that a bion culture, a would-be bion culture, made of something that produces a high pH, high is very alkaline mm. or basic, um, you don't get bions. They discovered that trying to make a bion culture out of the sand on the shore in Sri Lanka, right. which is all made from biological the shells of biological organisms um full of calcium carbonate oh, okay All right. so you get a lot you know you you get a high ph yes if you yeah. ground those up and add them to water mm-hmm. okay yeah that's um so where are we as well far as the list of questions <coughs> goes i don't know i've pretty much abandoned them to because uh, um, we just got going question two I think. <laughs> <laughs> we we have uh, covered quite quite a few of them you know the, yeah. the you asked me for listeners who can't say all this uh, phil sent me a list of questions and one of them what's the standard objection to organomy. Well, that's just one important standard objection to the The bion claims. Brownian motion. Yes, okay. Um, Is the the Brownian motion and the contamination. Um, Now, Brownian motion is very much an issue in this bion work um, because that's the standard objection. Now, again, if you don't know, if you're listening and you don't know what Brownian motion is, it's the motion of tiny particles of any solid material when it's suspended in a fluid. And allegedly, Robert Brown, famous botanist who lived from 1773 to 1858, I think, if I remember correctly, um, He published a paper in 1828 which actually described the discovery of the bions. But it's always presented as a discovery of of Brownian motion. And nowadays what Brown presented in that paper is always talked about and written about 
as what is now called Brownian motion. And Brownian motion does exist, it does occur, and it's quite, pos quite easy to see it. And there's lots of videos about it on YouTube if anyone wants to follow it up. And if you imagine a tiny little particle, you only get Brownian motion in very small particles, smaller than a micrometer in length or diameter. Um, I think that's the cut-off point. If you have larger particles suspended in a fluid, they're buffeted from all sides by the actively moving molecules of the suspension and these random motions cancel each other out so the particle doesn't move. So are you saying then rather than Brownian motion being an explanation, an alternative explanation yeah. for bions, it's something yeah. separate yes, from it? Yes, exactly, exactly. And if you repeat Brown's experiments, um, which is relatively easy to do, he, um, his experiments, he started with pollen because he was investigating the process of pollination in plants. And he saw pollen grains exploding and spewing out this highly motile stuff which science at the time referred to as granular matter and there was a debate was granular matter alive or not and it was buzzing with life and it's obvious if you repeat his experiments that they were actually bion, accidental bion cultures mm. um, and it's no big deal to do that you know you just get something that produces pollen that you can co collect easily and pop some pollen in some water and you, you can see what Brown saw. Mm -hmm. And I've done that myself quite often. There's a video about it on my YouTube channel, which is all glanks, all one word. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see what pollen looks like. We'll put water. links up on the uh, show yeah. notes and on the Facebook right. to your yeah. YouTube page. Mm -hmm. um, how do you... Sorry, go on. <laughs> How do, how do I what, please? How, how do you make the distinction between Brownian motion and bions? Because they are very different. Brownian motion, if you imagine a particle, it's going left and right, north and south, and to and fro towards you and away from you. In other words, it's moving in all planes, mm. bobbing about. Right. A bionous motility is very different. If you imagine a little dot in the water that's asymmetrical, slightly asymmetrical, so that you can tell that it's spinning. It'll be spinning very vigorously on itself. It'll be moving about from point to point and bions will be gathering together and forming what Brown referred to as fibrils, a little chain of these dots, three or four mm. or five, and they would bend and straighten, bend and straighten, and they would also turn on themselves. Right. And that's, that's not Brownian motion. <laughs> Brown himself dis compared the motion, the bending and stretching, to a worm. He described it as vermicular, which is just a fancy word for worm-like. Right. Now, no, Brownian motion has nothing in common with worm-like movement at all. And it's connecting, of course, with expansion and contraction. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. uh, pulsation. Pulsation, according to Reich, is the basic function in nature that you see everywhere. And again, you don't need to know a lot to recognise that. 
if you think of the way the body works, your digestion pulsates, you know, the just like a worm pushing your food along your intestine intestine. Peristalsis. Exactly, peristalsis. Your bladder pulsates, it fills, and when it reaches a certain point of expansion, it wants to empty and it empties mm-hmm. and so on. And your heart pulsating all the time at a much higher rate. You know, the, the rate of pulsation varies from system to system mm. and organ to organ. Um, jellyfish pulsates. Mm-hmm. You imagine a jellyfish wafting in water. Yeah. Um, so does that make the difference? Yeah, it, well, they sound nothing like each other. No, so they're not right. I don't know like how you'd confuse other. them. They're not. They're not like each other. It's it's a cop-out saying, oh, brownie in motion. It's, it's a complete cop-out. Um, it's very easy to demonstrate the difference. You know, I could, if you, and anyone who's listening who wants to contact me through the website, uh, we can fix up a visit and I can demonstrate the difference to you. Wow. So this is uh, CORE. Shall we get on to CORE and uh, how that was founded? Because I think we've gone through, unless you've got some more ergonomy. I, I have a, an ergonomy question yeah. about uh, organ accumulators. Yes. Which is the... The, the meme, isn't it? Well, that's the... that's. Organomy into the yeah, that's the big thing that comes the internet, up. Isn't and it? You, that's one of the first things that comes up. And the uh, and, and the unfortunate ending of uh, Rags' career as well. Yes, oh, yeah. which, which was brought related. about by the organ accumulator. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yes. Well, should we go back to Rags' story then, and then go yes, through the yes, invention of the yes. accumulator and his, his troubles with the FDA? Yes, and core. You asked mm-hmm. about core. Yeah, we'll get on to core. We'll, yeah. we'll get yeah. Mm-hmm. So you want to go back to Reich's... Yeah, let's go back to Reich's so story. We've got to Norway in the mid-30s and he's doing these experiments or these investigations with amoeba. Um, and once he'd homed in on amoeba, like Brown, he took it further. He tested inanimate materials, you know, coal dust, charcoal, sea sand almost anything, garden soil. Um, And he found that almost all these materials, in fact, I think all of them in rice investigations, produced bions. And he started to notice that the test tubes holding these cultures literally glowed in the dark and he sensed that they were giving something off that held against the skin for long enough they made the skin go red that he got inflamed eyes from looking at them for so long down the microscope and things like that Mm. Um, so he realised that accidentally he was on the track of this libido to begin with you know and then bioenergy that was his next name for it um, and some sort of radiation. Mm. To begin with, he was quite anxious because radiation was connected with radioactivity and risks, you know, to human organisms and so on. But he slowly came to the conclusion that what he was working with was harmless. In fact, you know, that was beneficial. He felt very well, very 
alive and strong and healthy and it didn't seem to be harming anyone and he just carried on working with it in spite of the initial anxiety. And he wondered exactly what this radiation was, what were its properties, what would, would it do or not do. And he started investigating it in a more focused, fairly old-fashioned scientific way. And the obvious way to start within the framework of modern science, still really, would be when you try and get a place where you've got this stuff and you see what's going on and you try and get a similar space where there's none of it and see what's going on, what effect it's A control. On. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and he found that he did conducted most of these investigations in a darkened basement in his house in Oslo. And he found that the, he couldn't get away from the radiation. It was everywhere. And uh, he tried to confine it. And he started by putting the test tubes in a Faraday cage. Do you know what a Faraday cage is? Yeah. Everybody's nodding, but maybe I need to explain for listeners. A Faraday cage, if you think of it as a, a parrot's cage, a bird cage, made of steel that grounds all electromagnetic radiation that hits it from outside. Mm -hmm. And it's a standard conventional item in ordinary school science, physics and so yep. on. It was then in the 1930s, and as far as I know, it still is. And he found that this had no effect. So he thought he would try adding an insulating material to the round the Faraday cage. And I'm not sure whether he mentions exactly what the material was or whether mm. he just says some insulator. I, to be honest, I can't remember. <coughs> so you imagine he got some sort of roof insulation or cellotex or something and put panels of that around the Faraday cage containing the test tubes with the bion cultures. And he found that this intensified the effects inside that he'd accidentally invented the organ accumulator what was it because Sorry, what? The, can i just finish yes, because the faraday sense. cage was a layer of steel and then a layer of insulating material and that seemed to have a concentrating effect and to cut a long story short he discovered that steel or iron attracts and repels this radiation that he was homing in on and an insulator an electrical insulator accumulates it. So if you make a box with steel on the inside and then layers of insulated steel, insulated steel, you get a concentration within right. that's stronger than the ambient concentration outside. Right. Hence right. the organ accumulator, which is a glorified cupboard big enough to sit in, <laughs> and the inside is a thin layer of galvanised iron. And then these remaining steel layers, just for the sake of cheapness and convenience, are made of wire wool. Right. 
which yep. is easy to cut, easy to peel out and into a thin layer. And the conventional material for the insulator, people have used various things. Rice started with roof insulation, and I still use roof insulation, but other people have used polythene and bubble wrap and polystyrene. People have tried all sorts of things. Um, and the more layers, you call a, a layer of steel and a layer of insulator one layer. Yeah. So a five-layer accumulator would have five layers of steel, steel wall, and the in, inside one of sheet metal, and five layers of insulating material. Right. And the more layers you have, of course, the stronger it is. Right. Um, he Reich recommended three layers, but of course he was working in a continental climate in the States, in a nice rural, he conducted most of his research in a nice rural atmosphere in Maine, up in the hills. Um, the humidity is pretty high in the UK, so I straight away added an extra layer, the first one I built. I had four layers, and I've always built them with four layers. And I would recommend anyone who's thinking of building one, you know, to start straight away with four layers because of the dampness. That's another of his accidental discoveries, that moisture retains orgone energy. Water and orgone energy are drawn to each other. So if there's a lot of moisture in the air, an orgone accumulator doesn't work so well. And in, in a place like England where you get a big variation from day to day you know one day your accumulator will work very well where it's blue sky and nice high white clouds and things high pressure weather mm. and um when it's rainy and damp and misty you know the accumulator will have a very slow draw and if you're used to using one you can tell you know it's not nearly so effective then how do you know the difference when you sit in an accumulator, if your own energy is fairly healthy and responsive, after, say, 10 minutes, you'll start to feel a pleasant buzz, mm -hmm. through the best way of describing it, in your body. If you put your hand close, you don't touch, but put it, your hand close to the outside wall, you'll maybe feel a tingle. Now, someone who's very, very armoured, he heavily armoured, wouldn't feel those. You know, they might have to sit in an accumulator every day, say for an hour, every day for a few weeks before their own energy had tanked up enough mm -hmm. to have a reaction. But, you know, a fit young person should feel a reaction straight away. And one of the very scientific demonstrations of the effects of the accumulator is a small rise in temperature, mm -hmm. which is, you just cannot gainsay it. You know, I've checked it dozens and dozens of times, both in myself and other people, and I've seen other people with other accumulators check people's temperature. You take it before you go in, for example, 30, your basic degree in centigrade nowadays is 36 what used to be 98.4 mm -hmm. yeah. when i was a kid um you sit in your accumulator for say 15 20 minutes and you take it again and it might be 36.3.4 it might be even 37 uh, if your very your own energy metabolism is very strong and responsive and the atmospheric conditions round about are good 
you know, it could go up as much as a degree centigrade. Mm -hmm. But it, again, it's not mechanistic, you see. It depends on the individual, A, the individual, and B, on the conditions, the ambient weather at the moment. But you, if you know about P numbers, getting a small rise in temperature again and again and again and again, you know, for mm. years and years, every time, that is a highly significant finding. Yeah. Very significant indeed. And I don't know how mainstream science would explain that away. Mm. And while we're on proofs, as it were, another connected item is... A very simple experiment, you know, an eight or ten year old kid could do this experiment. <coughs> you can make a small experimental accumulator, which looks quite like the big one that you sit in, and it's about a cubic foot on the outside, maybe a bit more, and the inside's a bit less than a cubic foot. And you can prepare batches of seeds which are identical. Absolutely identical. Same number of seeds, same weight of soil, give them the same amount of w water and you keep them in the same room at the same temperature. And the only difference is that your experimental batch sits in your little accumulator for four or five hours in the middle of the day when the atmospheric organ energy is expanded to its maximum. And they are therefore in the dark. So you, your control batch, you put in the dark as well. And, and when you take your accumulator batch out, you know, you remove your controls from the cover and you water them at identical times, the same amount. And within, supposing you germinating cress seeds, some common or garden thing, you know, that you can buy for 20, 30p from, from any garden shop. You will find after five or six days that there's a really, really significant difference in the height of the organ-treated seedlings compared to the controls. And again, that's an experiment that's been done by many, many people in many different countries, you know, and I've done it several times myself. Is it the? Do you think it's the metal or the insulation in well, the? It's both. It's the effect of both together. So if you had the, how I would do it, I'm. I didn't say this before, but I, I'm. I am a scientist. I've. I've I can tell. In microbiology yes. for, for many yeah. years. Um, but how I would run it is, I'd have my organ accumulator box. Yes. And I'd have an identical box. Yes. Without the steel, so yes. it would be the same thickness, the same. You could, you Same can do that, number and people, of layers of people have done that, yes. Right, okay. Yes. So then you get, you reduce your variables, because if, yes. if you had a, yes. if you have one in a box and then one just like yes. under a yes. dark mug or something, yes. it'd be... Um, I mean, you're talking about um, constructing an experiment now, you know, yeah. with terminology like variables. Absolutely, you know, I couldn't agree more. Do everything to produce an experiment that a mainstream scientist would acknowledge as authentic. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's good that that's, that's been done. Um, There's been two randomised control trials done on human beings in accumulators in Germany and Austria. One chap who conducted them did it as part of an MSc at Vienna University. Right. When was this? He constructed a, 
I'm not sure of the details, but he had an accumulator, obviously, and he constructed, or somebody else constructed, a thing that looked like an accumulator, but had no accumulating facility. Right. Um, now, how you do that, I'm not sure, because the inside um, layer of metal is obviously recognisably metal. Yes. Perhaps yeah. he had some pretend, Having you know... Plastic or something. Plastic that looked metallic, yeah, possibly, I don't yeah. know. Um, but it is po must be possible to do it. And people, you know, sat in the control container and a real accumulator and they measured their vital signs, temperature, pulse mm -hmm. and blood pressure. And the uh, accumulator had a significant and measurable effect, whereas the control container didn't. Wow. That's the way to do it. Yeah. I assume these people that were selected to go in, they were just selected to take part in a study, were yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they didn't know what they were. Yeah, they're trying to yeah. control it was out. It a truly randomised, you know yeah. what a randomised control yeah. trial is. It's considered the gold standard yeah. for um, any um, medical or biological research, scientific research. Um, it's very difficult in organomics research to actually construct a randomised control trial because with a true trial of that sort, the experimental subject doesn't know whether they're getting the treatment or not. Yeah. You know, they can be given... Double blind. Double blind. And even the experimenter doesn't know. Mm. Whereas if you're trying to demonstrate the effect of organ therapy, for instance, digging into someone's muscles and working with their breathing, there's no way you can disguise that. Somebody knows what's being done to them. Yeah. yeah. It's not like a pill where you yeah. can give someone exactly. the sugar pill and. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But the, um, the experiment I was talking about, the seed germination, in one way it's, it's very pure in that there's no placebo effect. We presume there's no placebo effect <laughs> with um, seeds. Um, <laughs> you, you, you rule out the placebo effect. You never know. <laughs> You see, people who are pro-ergonomy, you know, will sit in an accumulator and uh, say, oh, my temperature's gone up, you know, all going energy, it's great, isn't it? You know, look at that, fancy that, you know, I feel super. And they'll rush off, you know, telling the world how wonderful ergonomy is, you know, and I can't stand that, that's not what <laughs> I want. I want, you know, serious, down-to-earth, grounded research that people can't pick apart. Yeah. And somebody sitting in an accumulator once and getting a temperature rise, that can be talked away, as you will know, you know. Uh, any sceptic can quite rightly say, oh, well, you know, once means nothing. Whereas if you get a much smaller rise again and again, repeatedly, regularly, mm. then that's far more significant. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Right. So Reich built the uh, the first organ accumulator. and is, is this what landed him in trouble, or was it these books? Not the first one, but he... The very first one, I'm not sure whether it was made in Norway or America because it all happened towards the end of his time in Norway. Right. And he escaped from Norway by the skin of his teeth. He got to America on the last liner that made it to, Nor to America from Norway before the war started. Right. So it was a very narrow squeak indeed. And I am, I'm imagining, I'm guessing that he hadn't built an accumulator, but as soon as he got to the States, he started building them and experimenting with them um, in all sorts of ways. And all this is written up in the sequel to the function of the orgasm, which is the cancer biopathy. Um, the function is 
the discovery of the organ part one and the cancer biopathy its proper name is the discovery of the organ part two and that if anyone wants to read up on the history the experiments and so on that they carried out that led eventually to the organ accumulator and the bion experiments that's the book to read um He started off in New York, which is very damp and humid, like it is here in the in the summer, I believe. I don't know New York well. And so he looked for some premises out in the country, you know, with nice, fresh, <coughs> clear, bright um, conditions. And he bought a derelict farm in Maine, which is... Um, bought that with a loan from an admiring patient and paid the loan back quite quickly. And that place still exists, and it's now the Wilhelm Reich Museum. Ah, uh, yeah. And they have so a conference every summer uh, on one or other aspect of organomy. Have you been over to that? Yes, I have. Yeah, it's a great place to visit, and I've been invited to contribute to a conference next summer. Very good. Very good. Awesome. Um, can you take guests? <laughs> three, three guests. <laughs> Anyone can go. You know, if you if you're willing to pay to get to the states <laughs> ah, and stay there, That's I the recommend it as a fantastic experience. It's mm. because you you really soak up the atmosphere of Rice working world. You know, what time of year is it held up? July, I think. Some right. oldies. I recommend it to anyone who um, is remotely interested in autonomy. It's a great experience. And as well as the actual conference, you can wander around the museum and explore it at leisure and see the equipment he used. And Do you say that was like in that. Maine? Do you yes. Say? Yeah. Yes. It's a, but the nearest big city is Portland, I believe. Portland, oh, Oregon. Maine. Yeah, excellent. No, not not the one in Oregon. Oh, there's one in Oregon and there's one on the east coast in Maine. Maine oh, is, is in Mass- oh, yeah. Massachusetts. I thought isn't Maine it? was in the middle. No, no Maine no. is on the northeast oh. coast. Oregon is sorry. Yeah. Boston and Maine. Yes, Boston. It's Massachusetts. Yeah. I think. Mean. Okay. You're quite right. There is a, a Portland in. Um, in the middle. In, in Oregon. Oregon. Yeah. In Oregon. Yeah. 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 All right. So he constructed <laughs> the first. Well, he, he settled in Maine. Yeah. And that's what. What did he do next? he started um, building he employed a man a a carpenter joiner building a practical chap uh, who made lots of organ accumulators and he started renting them out the token rent to people who were very ill and he conducted experimental therapy with people who had cancer who were known to have cancer and who'd been written off by mainstream medicine and again if anyone wants to read about this it's in the cancer biopathy and he found he had this very very optimistic idea that cancer was brought about by what he called a stasis a traffic jam as it were a standstill of your organ energy in the organism and if you tanked people up, recharged people in the organ energy accumulator, their energy might start moving again and it might start breaking the tumour down. And remember, these were all people who were very far gone, written, given up by mainstream medicine. Mm. And he did in fact find that his hopes were fulfilled to some extent 
but the patients all ended up dying anyway because their rather battered, damaged organisms couldn't cope with the process of the tumour breaking down and dumping the breakdown products. Cracky. That'd be metastasis. Would it not create tumours elsewhere? Yes, of course. I mean... Oh, I said, well, you know, no, it didn't make them have more tumours, no. It just made the tumours they have in the best cases, in the best scenarios. It made those um, tumours break down, but the body's got to get rid of that. Mm. You know, and if the body's already been very ill for years and years, it, um, its excretory system is not going to be at its best. No. And people ended up dying, you know, clogged kidneys. Basically, right. yeah. as I understand yeah, him, no filtering. But uh, quite a few of the patients' lives were prolonged, and their pain levels were much re- re- reduced. And that's yeah. one of the very positive things about the accumulator. It seems to stimulate very positively all the body's natural healing processes. So it's a good, low-key pain reliever hmm. that's very useful so if, if if i was to play devil's advocate yeah please do and then say you know if you if we talked about the placebo effect yes and you say you gave someone and said right you're in a bit of pain you've got mm. cancer and whatnot mm. or in a lot of pain and they get them potentially someone who's quite a desperate person yes it's like dying of cancer mm. terminal mm. cancer or whatever and you say look you've had these people they've had good results from going into this mm. they buy into that yes, yes that reduces their anxiety and there's an association in research between anxiety and pain and yes, how yes, much yes, you feel yes, it yes. And there's a lot of research you know yes. between that so how would you you know differentiate between that placebo potentially and orgone energy it would be very difficult to um you'd have to do with like a a double blind study with cancer patients oh, yeah, and give you know it's not ethical to do experiments no, exactly. like that. Mm. I I'm out of a stab at this. So you said that the <laughs> can I answer so, your question? Yeah, Excuse sorry, me. sorry. Excuse yeah. me. Um, uh, or try and answer it. Mm. Reich did everything he could to not raise unrealistic expectations mm-hmm. and you're quite right i mean even now occasionally very occasionally i get contacted by mm. someone who knows nothing about organomy mm. and they've heard by sheer chance about the organ accumulator supposing you've got a chap his wife's been given six months to live yeah. an old lady she's got cancer and he comes across the organ accumulator yeah. online somewhere Mm-hmm. And he tracks me down. You know, this is literally this no, has no, happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you're right in the middle of that predicament. Um, you have to do everything you can to play down expectations. You can't peddle the accumulator as a cure for cancer. Mm. And Reich never did. Mm-hmm. He, he was accused of doing so, but he didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And I would, um, if anything, you know, backpedal the other way. Say, all we can do is give it a chance. Mm-hmm. And the, the obvious thing is, in fact, to apply Reich's discoveries long, long time before people get cancer, you know, or when the cancer's a tiny little lump somewhere, you know, rather than a great big lump that's eating them away. 
um, in, in practice, this research has met a dead end. You know, no one's doing anything in the field at all to speak of, apart from the odd enthusiastic am amateur, mm -hmm. you know, who discovers it and, and makes one for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know of any medical people. Ah, oh, there is one chap in Italy. Actually, he's not a doctor. He's a biologist, PhD biology worker. And he's... Um, as far as I know, treating cancer patients with the accumulator. Right. And he monitors it very carefully because he's a biologist. He's also a microscopist. And he takes samples of their um, tumours and things. If you want to follow it up, I'll, mm -hmm. I can find a lead for you. Yeah, excellent. Um, no? Yeah. Going back to, um, was it the the results from the cancer treatments he was doing that got him that first made him um, come to the attention of the FDA in the States when he started being pursued by them I'm not certain what exactly I think what really drew him to their attention was actually a journalist's article oh there was a journalist um, wrote an article called The Strange Case of Wilhelm Reich a woman mm. called Mildred Eddie Brady or Brady Eddie, I forget her name now. Um, and she was hostile to Reich and she wrote the article to do him down. Did she not refer to sex boxes or yes. something like that, basically? She implied been... that it was a sex racket. Yeah. And if you look at the FDA, that's the Food and Drugs Administration, their responsibility is to monitor drugs and medical treatment and so on in this US and they still exist mm -hmm. Th their attitude was that this was some sort of secret money making sex racket they couldn't imagine that the organ accumulator was a simple medical device that Reich was feeling his way with you know and he because people were paying a token rent I, as far as I know it was quite token you know what he wasn't making much money out of it at all if anything he as far as i know he fed the rent money into the production of further organ accumulators he wasn't pocketing money at all um but they couldn't imagine anyone doing something like that you know for the good of other people's souls mm. um you know some people just can't imagine human beings doing something mm -hmm. for the good of other people especially not in america yeah <laughs> <laughs> So uh, he was, technically speaking, arraigned for trafficking an unapproved medical device across state borders. Mm -hmm. Now, that's mm -hmm. some, a technical American offence. You know, we haven't got Makes states. Makes it federal, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, it's to do with mm -hmm. different things in different states. Uh, and there was an injunction slapped on him and his organisation saying that he couldn't trade in these gadgets, the organ accumulator, and he couldn't traffic them from one state to another. And while Reich was away and not in control of things, one of his assistants moved an accumulator from Maine to New York, I think it was, anyway, across an interstate border, and it got picked up, which meant that they'd technically contravened the injunction. Mm -hmm which means you're in breach of your... you committed contempt of court. Right. And contempt of court anywhere is a very severe offence. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they take it out on you. And mm-hmm. he was given a two-year prison sentence for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't make it. Mm-hmm. He, he died just before he came up for parole <coughs> of heart trouble. He had a long history of heart trouble. And he just died in his sleep, as far as we know. It seems that that sort of technical offence of, you know, accumulated crossing state yes. borders is, is just sort of a, a thin veneer. Because yes. I read that they burnt his books, which sounds like complete gross censorship. As well as the injunction not to trade with them and to move them about, the injunction ordered, as you correctly say, the burning of all his books, the destruction of all the remaining accumulators. Mm. And um, one or two other things, I think. Anyway, the, and the, believe it or not, his books were burnt. <laughs> He's, as far as we know in history, the only person whose books were burnt by the Nazis and somewhere else. <laughs> and book burning in America is... I dare say that's the only one, you know, there hasn't been another one since. It's very, very rare indeed. Maybe the Quran. What was the... the individual uh, books. Yeah. Not en masse. Not, not federally um, no, no, yeah. no, no. encouraged book burning. But no, in, the, uh, in the 50s... In Orwellian, America, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. In the 50s yeah. in America, though, what were the, uh, like, show trials? What was that, the era McCarthy of... The, yeah. Because the that was... The communists. And he was... Yes. A communist, did you not they say? They did suspect he was a communist, but he managed to prove he, that he wasn't any longer. He had been. Mm-hmm. And they, they sort of wrote him off as safe, you know, and as a, right, not a security okay. risk. So that's not part of it. Mm-hmm. In fact, the people who, who shopped him to the FDA were communists. Mm-hmm. The communists were very, very hostile to Reich. Really? Because of his um, mass psychology book. Right, okay. Yeah. Right, so... Yes, the, um, the the book you talked about at the beginning, the mass yeah. psychology of yeah. Nazis, uh, um, fascism. 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 Yeah. yeah, you can yeah. relate that to socialism yeah. and communism, yeah. can't you? They Two sides of the same <coughs> coin. They didn't like him sort of uh, showing up their weaknesses and their mistakes mm. and errors and things. Yeah. There was one other question I wanted to ask about, especially about Reich, it was, was um, I've seen some, oh, read some explanations about some of where some of his ideas came from because he was what he described. He said, like, I think he described he had like his first sexual experience when he was four. Um, and what, whether that's true or not, I don't know. It was, it was like a secondary quote or whatever. Mm. But um, some people said that he came across as a person who had been abused as a child. And that maybe had an influence on where all this kind of thing came from, especially like relation to sex and things like that. I think I know who you mean. I don't know. I can't remember who it was. I'm not certain. Mm. I think it's a man called Roger Wilcox, who Mm. is a a sort of professional critic of Reich. Right, okay. Um, And I have heard that. It rings a bell that, mm. that, that he comes across as someone who might have been sexually abused as a child. Um, I mean, that doesn't necessarily make you, you know, then go on to you just make loads of things up about stuff. But I don't know, maybe that's why he had an interest in those kinds of things, I suppose. Yes, I think it's obvious that something must have happened in Rice's life that mm. made him understand and appreciate the importance of sexuality, mm-hmm. you know. The, the function of the orgasm, that's what yeah. it's about. 
that the orgasm isn't just a nice thing. Mm. It's a biological regulator, right, right. as it were. And my reading of it is that maybe you don't know this history, and maybe lots of the listeners don't. Rice's mother had an affair mm. with one of Rice's tutors. Rice was educated a lot at home. And he had this tutor who was very interested in natural history and biology and animals and things, and apparently inspired his, some of his later interests. And Reich betrayed this affair to his own father. Yeah. And his mother ended up committing suicide. Mm -hmm. I think when he was <coughs> sort of 10, 11, 12, something like that. Yeah. Now, it seems to me that if that happens in your own family, if somebody, you, your, your mother, you, mm -hmm. know, you can't get more important than that, can you, kills themselves yeah. because of sex, to, to yeah. put it, you know, yeah. in a very stereotypical, mm -hmm. inverted commas. Mm -hmm. You're going to think, bloody hell, this is important, isn't yeah. it? This, this matters. Mm -hmm. This is a huge, huge lesson. Mm -hmm. And all sorts of people when their lives are affected by some shattering trauma as a child, go on, you know, to be interested in that thing for the rest of their life, don't they? It's a common experience. But that doesn't invalidate it to, to me. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean, oh, he was wrong and sex is rubbish. It's just a <laughs> trivial pleasure. Yeah. Um, maybe it's a very valid lesson to learn. Well, the other thing as well is the, it, this kind of thought arises from the time that you live in as well doesn't it and how much of a taboo sex and having well, having an affair now is still a taboo isn't it but how much sex was a taboo or talking about sex in 1950s america well earlier than that wasn't it it would when he yeah, was a I child mean, that's when he came in trouble in well yeah trouble, it was trouble yeah then and earlier when he was forming his ideas if you're right, talking what, about his mother that yeah. would have been well rife was born in 90, 1910 say something yeah. like that and there would have been much bigger taboo, both on having an affair and mm. talking about exactly, it and, that's what and I mean, being yeah. open about it, mm. yes. Um, I mean, it's very, very relevant to modern times, actually. Now, the thing has turned completely the other way. When Reich was a young psychoanalyst, he was trying to liberate sex for yeah. teenagers. Yeah. And there's a very poignant picture painted by somebody or maybe it's an engraving of and it's called something like in love and nowhere to go you know that right had a copy on his wall somewhere i think and it's a teenage boy and a teenage girl in the sort of industrial slums of vienna you know hiding with their arms around each other in this dark street you know and that was the sexual lot of teenagers when Reich was a teenager, you know, yeah. or a young man. Now, and so he was working, doing his best to liberate sexuality for young working class adolescents, you know, and he campaigned and he had an organisation in Berlin and he talked, he, he had huge meetings, you know, with young people educating them about sex. Yeah. And now it seems to me quite the opposite. It is, isn't it? And... I actually met a young person who's, who did this. It crossed my mind, thinking about Reich and present-day history, that maybe 
it might be a bit healthier to as a teenager to abstain from sex mm-hmm. because nowadays so much teenage sex is totally pornographic mm-hmm. and sick and weird and loveless <laughs> and not very nice at all mm-hmm. and i imagine you know obviously i'm an old man now i just try to imagine myself into the heart and mind of a sort of 16 18 year old girl now you know and lo and behold, I bumped into one, just sheer coincidence, and that's exactly what she'd done. Mm-hmm. She'd come up against this sort of raging, rampant, pornographic sex culture as a university student. You know, she was older than that now. Mm-hmm. She was a young woman, about 24, <coughs> 25. Mm. And she just felt in her guts, I just don't want anything to do with this. Mm. And she totally rejected it and sort of kept to herself you know in you might say a rather prim victorian you know (laughs) she'd more or less followed old-fashioned victorian morality Mm -hmm. and it struck me that that's possibly i mean i wouldn't lay the law down about it but in 2018-19 maybe that's more wholesome you know than watching a lot of pornographic sex on online Mm -hmm. it's sin more purely as just a biological function now isn't it and yeah. uh, a lot of the emotional context is taken out yes the, through the uh the, the way porn is everywhere it's in advertising it's on tv yeah looking <laughs> around this room sorry i'm not helping the situation am i but i'm a grown man i can deal with it it's but a lot yeah. of pressure isn't there as well pressure amongst young kids yeah, yeah. i'd yeah. say so yeah yeah mm-hmm. i mean there's just some thoughts you know yeah but it shows to me how relevant Reich is to the present. Yeah. You know? That was one of my questions, really, is what are the implications of, you know, to the to this day and age of this work? Well, Reich was... He wasn't just for having sex. He was for having what he called healthy sex. Mm-hmm. He, in his early psychoanalytic days, he wondered, you know, what? Again, it's something that very few people ever wonder about. What really is sexual health? What, what is healthy sex as opposed to pornographic sex? Sex that satisfies people you know, and leaves people feeling good about themselves and about each other. He talks about feeling tenderness and gratitude towards the partner you know, as a, one of the consequences of, of a healthy sexual embrace. You know, well... <laughs> how often could people say that nowadays mm-hmm. after a sex act um, so part of his function and you can anyone can read this in the book is a summary of these early investigations and he was talking to people and he was face to face with Droves and droves of young people, you know, who were impotent, who were frigid, who couldn't do this, couldn't do that. Um, All sorts of weird, warped sexual obsessions and perversions and things. And he described some of them as case histories. Uh, And he ran a counselling service, you know. But he he realised it was a drop in the ocean. Mm. You know, when you're surrounded with two or three thousand young people from the industrial slums of Vienna or Berlin. 
there's not a lot you can do for people <laughs> beyond no. tell them about the facts of life and inform them about contraception and abortion and things, you know, because mm. it, in those days, of course, girls were dying mm. from Street. illegal abortions yeah. and things. I think that's the thing I read about him was these were proponent, wasn't he, for abortion, mm. Mm. like in the, when he was in Vienna. Yes. But a, more, a, a thing that I've sort of I've picked up from various kinds of different things was in Vienna. Was there not like this, I don't know if it was underground or a mainstream kind of culture before kind of the Nazis came and fascism and all the rest mm. of it, of quite being sexually liberal and people living in different genders, like homosexuality being quite open. Am I sort of making that up around that time, that in like sound, the 20s? That sounds like Weimar Germany. Mm-hmm. So perhaps Vienna was a bit like that too. Right, Because okay. it's, it's not going to happen in one big city and not in another, mm. is it? Yeah. So probably, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I suspect you're talking about a fairly narrow, com- yeah. comfortable segment of the population. Mm-hmm. And Rife was talking about the industrial workers. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. It would have been, yeah. Whose sexual culture would have been very different. Mm-hmm. It would have been dominated by religion still. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And fear and anxiety mm. yeah. and ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. The consequences, yeah. aren't they, I suppose, of, of, of getting pregnant or whatever, or having a child with somebody uh, then... And having no money, nowhere to live, all the rest of it, and then being ostracised as well, you know, that's pretty... That would have been terrible. Yeah. 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 That would have been yeah. terrible. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, that would be a huge motivation for all these illegal, mm. least potentially lethal abortions that girls went for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad, that, isn't it? And it's mm. gone on forever. Yeah. And it probably and it still well, goes on still today. Going on. Northern yeah. Ireland, yeah, yeah exactly. Still yeah. Going on. I think they just well. I think the Parliament in London did they not force it recently? <sighs> I don't know. There's controversy over it, isn't there? I think they forced it, didn't they? Because they have thingies anyway. Segway. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about that time. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, the biggest sort of. Um, effect of this research seems to be medicinal yes medical yes yes and maybe spiritually because it raises interesting interesting questions about life itself and where life comes from doesn't it absolutely yeah couldn't agree more yeah um it's sort of i don't know what do you think of the 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 implications like the, the big implications for different spheres that we live in today well, that was one of your questions, wasn't it? And I did Probably. think about I might that. It. Um, I would think the biggest implications are for for medicine and possibly social policy in the long run. And Rice's big passion by the time he got to the end of his life was what he called prevention. Right. You know, so however wonderful his therapy might have been, it's a you know, how many people can a, a therapist treat in a lifetime? You know, it's a tiny, tiny number. And while you're treating them, or ev- virtually every baby is forming some armoring because people don't know about the importance of children's primary needs and they don't know that children form armoring and they don't know about the bad effects of armoring. And Reich had this wonderful project which he called the Organomic Infant Research project to collect a small number of parents and new babies you know and try and see 
what you could do to bring them through without any armoring, without any damage. And it folded partly because of conflict between the participants and partly because of his legal difficulties. And it's still not been done to this day. Right. Um, but that's a much, to my mind, that's a much better way of using his discoveries than trying to, say, treat cancer. Yeah, because it's just the practicalities yeah. of yeah. something using something like an accumulator, uh, especially if it has to be occupied day after day mm. for a length of time. Uh, yeah, sort of early intervention is is what you're looking at, isn't yes, it? To try and right. have the best yes. results. Yes. So is he saying that armoring is, is brought on through psych psychology or psychological damage? Is that where it yes. starts? Through childhood then? Yes. Well, the other thing is, is even now we talk. There's a big push towards like perinatal mental health. So, like yes. if, when a woman's pregnant, yes, and the effect of anxiety or extreme anxiety on a fetus, yes, and it can yes. cause de developmental issues. The link, biological link between that, apparently, absolutely, yes. And there's tentative evidence to, su to suggest that the organ accumulator could be used to moderate that anxiety because mm. it engenders expansion. Mm -hmm. Reich used the accumulator on his own son. His mm. wife had a baby in 1944, right. right in the middle of the heyday of the organ accumulator. <laughs> and uh, she used it, you know, to without any sense of harm at all. I mean, it's, it's anecdotal. It's only one case. Mm. I think probably quite a few other women have used it. Mm. Um, but the lovely thing about working with babies is it's so easy to undo armoring in a baby because it's only been there for five minutes and mm. a baby wants to get rid of it. You know, gr mm. grown-ups don't want to get rid of their armoring. <laughs> They're proud of their armoring. Mm. You know, those shoulders that you were miming so mm. beautifully, you know. Lots of blokes with shoulders like that are proud of them, aren't they? You know, mm -hmm. oh, I'm a big, strong chap, you know, you can't, can't defeat yeah, me. Yeah, babies don't have egos, do they? <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. And you can feel the tensions in a baby's body uh, and melt them away so easily it's just amazing how well, effective it is with a baby my wife is uh i've got a three month old well you know, right. four month old baby and um she's get, having sessions with a, a baby massage therapist yes and the the impact that that has on him you can see how much more relaxed he is yeah, and he's and that's so again that's a well-known kind of thing isn't it that massage and that relation to babies and they just kind of zone out and they'll drop asleep when they, they, they wouldn't before and all the rest of it. That is a big advance in our culture, the fact that you can go to a baby massage se session through your GP or something. Mm -hmm. That is a big advance. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, the people who do that would be even better at it, at it if they knew about armouring mm -hmm. and energy. Mm -hmm. But still, it's a lot, must mm -hmm. go a long way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But it's just that, it's thought of that link, you know, between... Mm -hmm. Yes. That just Absolutely. the the link between contact physical contact that babies have mm. i mean i don't i'm probably going to get this wrong but i'm sure there was research done with babies that didn't have physical contact for a long period were really badly affected well just physical contact between the mother and the child there's that thing isn't there there's the there's a famous it's horrible experiment mm. they did with baby uh, monkeys yes and they put them they had a a soft fake mother to cling yes. to or a, a hard one 
and uh, yeah, it was awful. And that, and and then and then nothing to scare them, and they kind of cowered in the corner rather than cling on to the hard. But anyway, yeah. So it had an impact, didn't it? And eventually, it really messed them up. Mm-hmm. Not having that kind of physical contact with something. <laughs> you see, lots of even now, lots of parents don't know about that. They don't know about the importance of skin to skin and mm. carrying. You can, with a three month old, you can do this experiment. Just try carrying your baby mm-hmm. for several hours. I don't mean for 10 minutes. Well, I do, I do, I <laughs> <Yeah>. do. <laughs> and you'll, you can see a baby who's carried yeah. just hangs there, flops. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, after a while, you, you do notice with him quite shortly, um, he'll. Uh, you start off and he's kind of grabbing you, your shoulders, he's clinging at you, pouring at you. And eventually I feel his arms drop and he zones out and that's when yeah. he only falls asleep. Yes. Eventually. Yes. He gets relaxed. But the other thing as well with that is um, baby carriers. Yes. He's much more relaxed in a, yes. a baby carrier than he is if I'm holding him because he's pressed against yes. my chest yes. or my wife's chest. Yes. And he just kind of just sits there yeah. quite happily rather than, Right. It probably goes right back to our evolution. You know, when we were hunter-gatherers, the baby or the young child, toddler, had to be carried exactly. because of predation. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. it's like like we, we say it every week pretty much, all humans are born premature Yes. yes because yes. of the size of the birth canal and ratio the to the skull. Mm-hmm. You know, we're helpless, whereas a deer is born and it has to be up on its feet, yeah. sharpish, otherwise it's dead meat. Uh-huh. Yeah. Too far in a point Which brings me to something I always plug. You're absolutely right, Phil. There's, there's a book about this, and it's called A Continuum Concept, and anyone who's listening and who's a parent or thinking of becoming a parent should get a copy. There's thousands of them secondhand for next to nothing. It's called The Continuum Concept, and the author is called Jean Leadloff. She's dead now. And that's about a tribe in the Amazon jungle where they carried the babies till they were big enough to crawl. Right. And exactly the same philosophy that you're talking about. You know, you you can't wheel babies about there, you know, because mm-hmm. there's no pavements. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's just soil and jungle and things. Yeah. Um, and the babies were quite soft and unarmored you know and very when when they started to grow up and run around and walk they were very self-sufficient very fearless but safe Mm -hmm. they had a natural feeling for for their own safety Mm -hmm. lovely book well worth reading it's like our our modern society is interfering with our evolution in a way we we have these labor saving devices or prams or whatever you want to call them and they sort of interfere with what is what would have what's been happening for three hundred or two hundred fifty thousand years? Mm. If you suddenly stop that mm. at the age of zero months to three months, it's got to have an impact, hasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is what ergonomy brings you up against. You know, um, if you look at it deeply enough, what you're talking. It's great that you've uh, you've thought of them rather than me peddling them. <laughs> <laughs> you should talk about your book while you're here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the one that you've brought here, is this your latest book? One of the books. Well, actually, um, I'll come to that, but yeah. if, if we've got any time left, there's one or two oh, things. Oh, well, just before you start, when was the bus? When was the bus you were going um, to We're at ten past ten it's now. Ten past ten now. Right, well, I've got to get the next one then. It's I think it's 
Right. 10.35. So, we so we'll to have finish. to think about wrapping yes. up soon. Yes, right. Um, I wanted to explain core. Oh, yes. yes. Um, core stands for centre, which I'm not happy with, you know, because centre is very abstract. But <laughs> the word core is one of Rice's words. He talked about a baby's core needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the absolute centre of your very being. And an adult's core needs as well. So I like the idea of that, and that's why I've stuck to core um, as a shorthand for, for a focus on that. Um, the book is about my discovering that Einstein and an assistant of his published a book together called The Evolution of Physics in about 1936, seven, something like that, um, in which they convey Brown's discovery of Brownian motion in a blatantly fraudulent manner. They have a long quote with a bit in the middle left out. And when you check up on the bit that they've left out, it's the embarrassing bit that refers to the pulsatory motion that we mm. were talking about earlier. If you go back to Brown's yeah. original paper. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Wow. And if you go back to Brown's experiments themselves, you know, you find that he described what he saw very, very carefully. He was obviously a brilliant observer and that he was, in fact, describing the bions. And that's artifices of fraud. Fraud, that's right. Easy for me to say. (laughs) Artifices of fraud is a quote from Milton, if you're wondering where the title comes from. It's Milton's description of the devil, the artificer of fraud. Paradise Lost. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've run out of time, haven't we, I think? Well, Peter, um, it's been an, an mm-hmm. absolute pleasure. You have, um, to go, you have to come back, Peter, because yeah. I want to know about why you became a midwife as well. Okay, fine. Yeah, we'd be, yeah, we'll be to welcome to have, yeah. to have you yeah. back. Um, so, Thank you. Um, where can people find out more? Well, I've got a huge rambling website. <laughs> <laughs> Orgonomy, O-R-G-O-N-O-M-Y, orgonomyuk.org.uk. Okay, well, put, sorry, go on. There's pages on all the topics that we've touched on tonight. Brilliant. Well, we'll put a link to that in our show notes and on our Facebook page. Mm -hmm. And we'll also put the YouTube. You've got a YouTube channel, haven't you? Yes. So we'll put that link up as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there's anything else to say this week other than thank you very much for coming. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. And we'll sign off this week and come back next week. Yeah. talk about something else. Who knows? Cricket. Cricket. Yeah, Yeah, maybe the cricket. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, eavesdroppers. Wakanda forever. Have a nice week. Ta-ra. Really? <laughs>